Are you any good at learning from your mistakes? Do you ever have a quiet word with yourself? Something like, why can't you just learn the lesson? I enjoy hiking and have quite a lot of experience following maps and rarely get lost. But on one occasion, I got very lost. I knew that I had to turn off the main path and walk through a wooded area. So I was looking out for a stile on my right. I came up to one sooner than I was expecting, but arrogantly assumed I was just walking a bit more quickly than normal, so hopped over and started on the way. The first clue that I was wrong was the private sign next to the stile, which I found later. At first, the path was obvious, but soon started to fade away. That was the second clue. I was wrong. I carried on convinced I could see the path, and uh, congratulating myself for being off the beaten track. At one point I turned round and, and couldn't tell which way I'd come. The third clue. However, often paths in wooded areas are hard to follow, and I convinced myself that I was going in the right direction. I could see from the contour lines on the map that I needed to be heading uphill. So up I struggled. It was quite a bit steeper than the contour lines looked. My fourth clue that I was wrong. It wasn't until I hit the fifth clue though that I finally learned the lesson that I had gone wrong. The fifth clue was a barbed wire fence stretching as far as I could see at the edge of the wood. Even then, I carried on walking along it one way and then the other before I finally gave in and accepted I was wrong and didn't know where I was. I turned back, but of course was completely and hopelessly lost. After walking round for an hour or so trying to find a path, the farmer who owned the wood saw me and started yelling at me and then pointed the way I should go to get back to the path. It was not my finest hour in any sense. But I am encouraged that I'm not the only one. Today we hear about how Nebuchadnezzar refused to learn the lesson God was teaching him through Daniel and his friends. He needed to be a bit more humble. In chapter 2, he had a dream warning him that his kingdom was not the last word in human power. In chapter 3, he set up a statue of gold, celebrating his power. But God showed him through Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego that actually he was more powerful. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 had another dream, warning him against pride, which he also ignored. Let's dive in. We heard about Nebuchadnezzar's dream last week. It was of a large and strong tree, verse 20, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing fruit for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds, verse 21. Daniel told the king, verse 22, you are that tree. He was a great and powerful king and many nations lived under his protection. Of course, that's because he had brutally conquered them in the first place, but, you know. In the dream, 
The tree was cut down and left as a stump, drenched with the dew of heaven, living with the wild animals instead of giving shelter to them. Verse 23. This dream warned Nebuchadnezzar that he was in danger of being humbled, even humiliated. The once great king would be brought low, driven away from people, live with the wild animals, drenched with the dew of heaven. Verse 25. But why? Remember the verse we focused on last week? Daniel 4 verse 17. The decision is announced so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. We have it again in verse 25. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And again in verse 32. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Three times. These days when I'm writing something and I want to emphasise it, I can simply use bold or italic or underline on my computer. The biblical writers had no such tools, partly because they had no computers, but mostly because the Bible was written to be heard. So emphasis is done through repetition. Emphasis is done through repetition. Three times the lesson is repeated. The Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Verses 17, 25 and 32. Nebuchadnezzar, though, was as bad at learning that lesson as I was at learning I'd gone wrong on my walk through the woods. A father was so proud when his wife gave birth to their sixth child. Of all the achievements in his life, this was the one he was most proud of. So he took to calling his wife Mother of Six. For months, he called her Mother of Six, Mother of Six, and boasted to their friends. She grew sick and tired of it. And let's be honest, he was proud, but she'd done all the work. Eventually, at a dinner party, as she could hear him bragging about their six children, she snapped when he called out, Mother of Six, bring us some more nibbles. I'll be there in a minute, she called back, father of four. Nebuchadnezzar had much to be proud of. He ruled a huge empire. He had conquered the once mighty Egypt. He built his capital city, Babylon, with a huge double wall system all around, 21 feet thick so wide he could drive his chariot along the top. Then there are the hanging gardens, apparently built for his wife Amethyst, and were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He had at least three palaces, and a 400-foot-long bridge spanned the river Euphrates, connecting the east and west sides of the city. No wonder, as he stood atop his palace, he said, verse 30, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power 
and for the glory of my majesty. Maybe he'd forgotten his dream a year earlier. Maybe he didn't care. Maybe he didn't believe it after all those months had passed. But immediately a voice came from heaven and announced the punishment the dream had warned him of. And so, verse 33, Nebuchadnezzar was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. It sounds fantastical, doesn't it? But his condition has a name, boanthropy. Sufferers of boanthropy believe themselves to be a cow or an ox and eat grass. It's rare, but not unknown. So let's, let's not dismiss out of hand what the Bible says here. The mighty king, Nebuchadnezzar, whose commands brought fear into the hearts of his advisers and his people was brought low and truly humbled by the God Most High. Why? So he might know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Friends, God will not be mocked. We might not like to hear about God's judgment, but to water down what the Bible says about who God is and, and what God does is to make God less than he is. And, as we shall see, he is full of mercy as well as judgment. Some of you know that I enjoy to do jigsaw puzzles. I was really proud of myself this week because I finished a jigsaw puzzle that took me two years. I was especially proud because on the side of the box it said five plus years. I wonder, I wonder if I had been in Daniel's shoes, would I have acted as he did? He responded to the king so beautifully. He was gracious but honest and brave but gentle. First, Daniel was gracious but honest. My lord, he said, verse 19, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. He didn't gloat. He didn't enjoy passing on the warning. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar didn't deserve such kind words and feelings. He was a terror, a raging monster, God's enemy. But that's the point of grace, giving what is not deserved. Daniel was gracious, but also honest. He didn't hide the truth or pull his punches. He wasn't nice because he didn't shy away from challenging Nebuchadnezzar's behaviour. He didn't water down the truth. He was honest as well as gracious. Second, Daniel was brave but gentle. He'd shown his bravery before in chapter 2 when he said, after you. Here, his bravery goes even further. He offers the king advice in verse 27. And it's not, do what you think is right or be true to yourself, or follow your heart, or any of the other self-centred advice that we like to live by today. It was hard-hitting. 
renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Wow. You take your life into your hands when you say stuff like that to people with the power and pride of Nebuchadnezzar. Renounce your sins, Daniel said, to the king. Repent of your wickedness. Heed the warning and maybe, just maybe, you won't suffer the punishment. Daniel was brave. But he was also gentle. He began with, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Nebuchadnezzar's furious rage was met by Daniel's gentleness. And what a contrast Daniel is to Nebuchadnezzar. One is furious and angry and stubborn and arrogant. The other gracious and honest and brave and gentle. One is proud, the other humble. Does that description of Daniel remind you of anyone? I think those words, gracious, honest, humble, gentle, I think they describe Jesus too and show us something of what humility looks like in practice. There's a scene in the hit Netflix show The Crown when the Queen has an argument with Prince Philip on the eve of her coronation. It's pure fiction but good telly. The Queen refuses to make an exception for Philip even though he is her husband and insists that he kneel before her during the ceremony along with everyone else. She, of course, has not kneeled in homage before anyone since her father died in 1952. Anyone, that is, except God. For even kings and even queens must kneel before the God of heaven. We must all learn to be humble before the Most High God, lest he humble us as he humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Those who walk in pride, Nebuchadnezzar's letter ends, the King of Heaven is able to humble. That's the challenge of this passage, and it's a tough one. We all need to root out the pride and self-centeredness in our hearts. It's not always obvious, but that's why the Holy Spirit's work, showing us our sin, is a mercy. Because it allows us to say sorry to God. It gives us a chance to turn back from the woods in which we are lost. You see, for me, this passage is actually about mercy. First, there's the dream and the warning. That dream, although troubling, was mercy because it gave Nebuchadnezzar a chance. A chance he didn't deserve. A chance he ignored. But a chance nonetheless. And then there was the restoration. My sanity was restored, Nebuchadnezzar said, along with my honour and splendour and the kingdom. Verse 36. Why? Because I raised my eyes towards heaven. And my sanity was restored, verse 34. He acknowledged God at last. And he was restored. Mercy triumphs over judgment, James says in chapter 2, verse 13. But that doesn't mean we can do whatever we want and expect to get away with it. 
it means God in his mercy warns us and gives us an opportunity to turn back from the judgment we're heading for, to start again, to have new life, but we must heed it. We must turn and follow him or we'll stay stuck in the woods, lost and helpless. If we reject God's mercy, well, then we're in trouble, real trouble. The world is all, be true to yourself and follow your heart and do what you think is right and I did it my way. Friends, they are the opposite of the Christian faith. They are the way of self-centred pride. The way that leads to death because they're all about me. They're all about looking inwards instead of outwards. God's way is be true to God and follow Jesus Christ and do what he says is right and we did it his way. These are the way of humility, the way of life. And God in his mercy offers that way to us. He sets us on that path. Thanks be to God, because we can't get on it ourselves. Only he can take us from the path that leads to death and put us on the path that leads to life. It is a gift of mercy. The question is, will we walk it? Amen.